0: So that's, that's good. Uh, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 19? We're going to look this morning at verses 8 through 20. Chapter 19, verses 8 through 20. And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read this portion of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is the Word of the living God. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's help? Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Your word is light to our paths and lamps to our feet. Your word is life. So, Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand your word, help us to believe it, uh, help us to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in our midst today. And Lord, we ask that as we examine this portion of the book of Acts and see how you were at work in Paul's ministry, uh, that we would see through that, that we would continue to see Jesus lifted up and drawing all men to himself. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. How does the kingdom of God grow? How does it expand uh, in our world and in our lives? Jesus, throughout his ministry, told many parables about how the kingdom comes, what it's like, what it looks like, how it grows. Uh, and there's a couple of parables that kind of capture this growth of the kingdom, how it, how it happens. Jesus had a wonderfully vivid way of explaining spiritual truths. In one parable, Jesus said that the kingdom... Is like a grain of a mustard seed. It's very, very small. And yet, when it's planted in the ground, it grows larger than all the other plants of the garden. And he says somewhere else that it's like a little bit of leaven hidden in dough or hidden in flour uh, that spreads throughout the whole loaf until the whole loaf is leavened and begins to rise you get the idea from these parables that the kingdom often starts out slow, starts out small, but then it grows and it spreads gradually and progressively. Uh, last week in the passage that we looked at just prior to these verses that we read this morning, uh, we saw Luke emphasizing this progress in terms of how how coming to Christ to embrace him in the gospel often involves a process. And so we we talked about... Apollos and how he had a lot of understanding but he was missing a little bit in his faith and he he needed to know more about Jesus and when he did he he had a complete faith and the same thing with the 12 disciples of John the Baptist that Paul encountered they had some information but they didn't have it all but God was through all of that working progressively through a process to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ the Lord lovingly leads us through many circumstances in our lives Uh, at last, often bringing us to a true and lasting faith in Jesus as Savior. Luke continues to emphasize that same idea of progress, the kingdom of God progressing both in the world geographically, but also in our lives, the work of Christ growing and moving forward. But here in this passage, the emphasis seems to fall on how the kingdom of God overcomes the kingdom of darkness, how the kingdom of God progressively, steadily overcomes the kingdoms of this world, both out there, but also in our own lives and in our growth in grace. Particularly, we see how the light of Jesus Christ overcomes the darkness of sin in our lives. It's kind of like uh, the light of the morning sun, which many of you saw today. If you came for a sunrise service or if you came to cook breakfast For the sunrise service. It's like the light of the morning sun. It breaks the darkness at dawn. And that's how it is in coming to Jesus. Uh, We have the light of the gospel, the light of God's word, shine on our sin. We see our sin. We see our need for Jesus, and He enlightens our hearts and our minds. And we can embrace Jesus, and there's this decisive break with the darkness. There's a decisive move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, uh, no longer belonging to the sons of Adam, but now belonging to Jesus as our covenant redeemer. There's a break. There's an immediate transfer as we embrace Jesus in the gospel. But at the same time, while there's a decisive break, we know that not everything in our lives changes all at once. That light that breaks into our darkness, as the Proverbs say, uh, grows brighter and brighter until full day. Isn't that how the Lord works in our lives? He brings us into the light of his grace in Jesus Christ, who is the light of our world. And then he progressively, over time, through process, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, sometimes painfully, sometimes joyfully, but always at work, God is always at work overcoming the darkness of sin in our hearts. And, and that's part of, that's largely what we see happening in Ephesus during Paul's nearly three-year ministry there. And isn't it good news that that's what the risen Lord Jesus continues to do even now today in our lives. So let's look at how the light overcomes the darkness, particularly in two ways in this passage this morning. Uh, first, we see the light overcoming the darkness through the power of the name of the Lord Jesus. And there's a fun little story. There's kind of an ironic little story of a misuse of the name of Jesus and the exaltation of the name of Jesus, even in spite of this misuse. Light overcomes darkness in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then second we see we'll look at light overcoming darkness through the honest confession of sin, bringing what's dark in our hearts into the light of God's grace and gospel. Uh, so let's look first at how light overcomes darkness in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you're following the story, you notice in verses 8 through 17, there's this uh, scene of Paul having returned to Ephesus. He, he kind of takes up his normal pattern of ministry to the Jews first. He goes to the synagogue. He has this little bit of a honeymoon phase there. It's a longer period of time uh, in the synagogue that he can teach and he's reasoning, he's persuading, he's dialoguing with the Jews about the kingdom of God and seeking to win them over to Jesus as the long promised Messiah and accompanying this ministry in the synagogue for about two months or about three months, rather accompanying this ministry, uh, are these powerful deeds that God is doing to confirm Paul's message. <laughs> So Paul reasons in the, synagogues for about, in the synagogue for about three months. There's opposition. He leaves. He goes to this public lecture hall where he can reason daily, kind of in the middle of the day in Ephesus, uh, where many can come, Jews and Greeks alike, can come and hear of this good news of Jesus. And notice what, what happens as Paul is doing this. Verse 11, Luke tells us, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. God accompanies Paul's teaching with what Luke calls extraordinary deeds of power. Uh, This is another case of Luke kind of engaging in understatement. He literally is saying that these deeds were not ordinary, which is an understatement if you think about what was happening. Paul's handkerchiefs, maybe a work cloth that he would have wiped his hands and brow with, his work apron as he was a tent maker making tents uh, on either side of when he was lecturing. God was somehow mysteriously imbuing these pieces of uh, clothing with power. It's not superstitious, what magic. God was choosing to work through this to bring healing to people and cast out demons through Paul. Now we might ask, why Why this? This seems odd. This is a little bit unusual in the book of Acts. And I think a lot of it has to do with where Paul is in Ephesus and how much darkness there was and how much they needed light. Ephesus was kind of a, a hub in the Roman Empire for all of these different religions, all of these different cults, all of these different magical practices There was kind of this hodgepodge, kind of a smorgasbord of religious views, magical practices that all kind of met in Ephesus. This is kind of what it was known for. Just like Corinth was kind of known for immorality, Ephesus was known for magic. And uh, when we talk about magic, we're not talking about, you know, picking up the the book at the bookstore about how how to do card tricks or how to pull a rabbit out of a hat or, you know, the thing where you've got the scarf that never ends and it's multicolored. We're not talking about that kind of magic, right? Uh, this is this is darkness, this is evil, this is wickedness. These are attempts to manipulate nature through incantations, through the use of names and phrases and sorcery. These are all the things that the Old Testament basically calls an aberration and an abhorrence uh, to God's revelation of himself in the Bible. So when we talk about magic, we're not talking about You know, just card tricks and things like that. These were evil things. And it all found a hospitable home in Ephesus. And in some ways, God meets the people where they are. He uses things like Paul's handkerchief and Paul's apron to perform these deeds of power. But they went far beyond anything that they had seen in Ephesus. They were not ordinary. They were extraordinary deeds of power that were bringing the power of the kingdom of God to bear in Ephesus through the name of the Lord Jesus. Not only is Paul meeting them where they are, God is meeting them where they are, kind of superstitious, but he brings them into the light. But as you can imagine, people who are in Ephesus are kind of attracted to this, perhaps for the wrong reasons. And so we see these itinerant Jewish exorcists, the sons of Siva, seven sons of a Jewish priest. We don't really know anything about this priest or anything about his sons beyond what we read here. But we do know that in this time period, there were Jewish exorcists who would go around casting out demons. And oftentimes they would use kind of special spells and incantations to do so. And a lot of those things were associated with names. Find a powerful name and maybe that name will drive out evil spirits. So you can kind of catch what's going on here. They see Paul, They see Paul preaching the name of the Lord Jesus. They see these deeds of power associated with it, and they think, oh, we can get in on this because there's money involved. If they can do this, they can charge money for these powers. And so what do they do? Look what Luke tells us, verse 13. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, I don't don't know if you notice what's going on here, they don't know Jesus. Uh, they don't really know Paul, but they've heard Paul proclaim Jesus, and they've seen what happens. This is kind of like, does anybody know Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Anybody know this, this game, this story? that there's a. All right, well, I've got to explain it now because only a few of you laughed. There's an old theory that everybody is no more than six degrees separated from knowing Kevin Bacon. Don't ask me why it's Kevin Bacon, I guess, because he's such a famous guy. Y'all know, some of you even know who Kevin Bacon is, Footloose and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a great song. You can dance to it if you want to. Um, he's been in a lot of movies, so he's very popular. And uh, and the idea is that anybody can figure out that they know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows, somebody who knows Kevin Bacon. And that there's, only, there's a maximum of six degrees of separation. I'm three degrees separated from Kevin Bacon. Just for the record, if you have less than three degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, come let me know. But my college roommate met Kevin Bacon's wife at an airport. She's married to Kevin Bacon, so three degrees of separation. It's totally verifiable. But it's, it's kind of a funny game, right? I think there was actually a board game associated with it, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. And you kind of figure out how many degrees you are separated from Kevin Bacon. I've said his name more than I wanted to, so I'm going to stop there. But here's the thing. I may be three degrees separated from him, but if I went to a restaurant and saw Kevin Bacon sitting at a table and went up to him like, hey, Kevin, what's up? He'd be like, who are you? He doesn't know me. And I don't really know him. These seven sons of Siva, they see Paul proclaiming Jesus, and they see this power, and they're like, oh, we can get in on that. Even though they have no connection to Jesus, no connection to Paul, they think that they can somehow harness the power that's at work through Paul's proclamation of Jesus and the kingdom of God and use it for their own benefit, their own gain. What are they doing? What are they doing in this? They're manipulating the name of Jesus. They're somehow thinking that Jesus' name is about power. Jesus' name is about gain, and I can use that power to gain. And so they seek to kind of commandeer and master the name of Jesus for their own benefit. Now, aren't you glad that this never happens anymore? This was just limited to. Some of you are laughing. Why are you laughing? You know, we're coming up on election cycles, and what are you going to start hearing? You're going to start hearing every politician who comes to the South start talking about Jesus, start talking about church, start talking about the Bible. doesn't matter what party. Everybody does it. Whether it's genuine or not, doesn't matter. Everybody does it. And, and so we're, we're kind of warned here, I think in a sobering way, not to seek to manipulate the name of Jesus for our own gain, to treat him like a rabbit's foot. If I just kind of rub it, maybe I'll get a little good luck from saying the name of Jesus somehow. These guys had no relationship to Jesus, no connection to him. They were on the outside. They were three degrees separated from Jesus, and that doesn't get you to Jesus. And notice what happens. There's an irony in this story, isn't there? I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the man who's possessed by the evil spirit looks at them. He's like, okay, I know Jesus. Jesus and I'm aware of Paul, who are you? And then he overpowers them. Literally, Luke tells us he masters them and humiliates them so that they run out of the house naked and wounded. Jesus will not be used as a manipulative tool for our own purposes. That's not why he came. He did not come to be mastered by us, but he came to be master over us and calls us not to submit his power to our uses and our agenda, but to submit our lives, our agenda, our hearts to him as Lord. There's an abuse of the name of Jesus here, and yet Jesus' name, even at the end of that, we're told in verse 17, his name was still extolled. It was lifted up. People saw what happened, and there was a, a healthy fear in response to the wounding and humiliation of these seven sons of Siva, where Jesus was lifted up. They saw fake power for what it was, and they saw real power in Jesus. And many believed as a result of that. Light overcomes darkness in the name of Jesus. But notice also, and we'll we'll kind of settle here for a moment, uh, the second point, that light overcomes darkness through honest confession of sin in response to this humiliation of the seven sons of Siva and the extolling of the the name of the Lord Jesus in a proper way uh, fitting to his honor and glory, uh, there's a result that many of the believers in Ephesus start to experience spiritual renewal in response to this event. Notice verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came Confessing and divulging their practices, speaking specifically of these magic practices, these kind of, uh, for you Harry Potter fans, the dark arts uh, that they were engaged in, they came and began to confess and divulge them, even publicly gathering their books together, books with spells and incantations and so forth that they would use for their own gain, uh, you know, make somebody fall in love with you, have power over somebody, whatever. There was a spell for everything. They bring all of these books together, and they pile them up, and they burn them. Books valuing, Luke tells us, 50,000 pieces of silver. It's be would be know, millions of dollars, roughly, in today's money, counting the income that would come from, from all of that. Here's, here's what I want you to see here. These are already believers. These are people who have come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through Paul's preaching, and yet they still were holding on to these practices that were characteristic of their former life. And then when they see this incident with the seven sons of Siva and the evil spirit who overcame them and mastered them, there's this movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives where they begin to confess and repent of these practices that they had still held on to. And notice what Luke says. They weren't just confessing them. He says they were confessing and divulging them. Now, why add that? Isn't it enough to say they were confessing these practices? I I think part of what Luke is telling us is they weren't just confessing it privately, but there was an open acknowledgement of their sin. In other words, they were bringing darkness into light, They were bringing the dark things of their heart, the dark things of their former ways of life into the light. And I just want you to notice a few things about this. Um, first, it was a process. It was a process. Luke uses in verse 18 what, uh, just what are called imperfect verbs, which is a, a grammatical way of saying they were ongoing verbs. They kept happening, right? It was progressive. It wasn't a one and done thing. And I think that's an important thing. Sometimes the grammar of the New Testament is really important for the Christian life. And here's one of those places where it's important for the Christian life. We need to be reminded that coming to Christ uh, doesn't automatically fix all of your problems. It fixes the biggest problem. You're forgiven of your sins. You're accepted by God. That's a done deal. There's no going back on that. God doesn't stop that uh, at any point when you mess up or sin or fall short or whatever. If God's love for you Uh, If you have embraced Jesus, then God's love for you is secure in him. But there's also kind of a growing into that experience that takes time. Not everything is put aside immediately. It's a process, and that process happens through repentance, bringing our sin, bringing our darkness into the light. And these believers were doing that. They were already believers, but now they're coming, and they're confessing, and they're divulging, they're announcing this word divulging is used often to just describe uh, what God has done. They announced what God has done. They announced good news. They announced that Jesus had risen. And here they were, they were announcing that they were still sinners. They were announcing that they were still held captive by many of these things. And they were bringing it into the light that they might enjoy freedom from it. It's a process, it's ongoing. They were no longer bound to these things, but had found freedom in Jesus, and so they boldly, publicly, and decisively made a break with these former ways. I want you to see three things about how this shows us light overcoming darkness through the honest confession of sin. First, the light of God's grace chases away shame. The light of God's grace chases away shame. I think for many of us, there's a sense in which we're fearful of divulging what's going on in our hearts. We're fearful of confessing and being open and honest about the sins that we struggle with or the sins that plague our hearts or or even past sins that are done and they're in the past. We're not engaging in them anymore, but they're still there. And it's like they hide in the dark, lurking around dark, dark corners And you kind of live in fear and shame of what will be discovered. Will I be found out for these past things? Or will I be found out for these present things that are going on in my life that perhaps only God knows or only people close to me know? And there's a fear, right? There's a fear of being found out. And and that fear creates shame. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel came to free us from the shame of our sin. And the only way that happens is by our willingness to bring that darkness into the light of God's grace in the gospel. His light exposes our sin and it brings healing to our sin. And yet we're often fearful of doing that. We're fearful that perhaps if we are honest before God about the things that are going on in our hearts that you know, maybe some of us are fearful that he'll say, "Whoa, I didn't know that." Maybe you don't; your theology doesn't allow you to say that. But just experientially, maybe you fear being honest before God will somehow kind of get you kicked out of the club. But God's grace is greater than our sin. His light is greater than our darkness. His light exposes and heals, and He calls us to bring into the light our darkness, our sin, so that He can free us from that shame. Or perhaps we think not that God will kick us out. Probably that's not the number one thing we think. Probably most of us think, I don't want other people to know what's going on in my, my heart. I don't want other people to think ill of me. And we've got this sense that that following Jesus requires us to put up a front sometimes. And that we don't have the freedom to confess our sins and, and find grace and find healing and find transformation of our lives. You know, if you're constantly living with the fear of being found out and you haven't embraced God's grace and the gospel, guess what? You're going to keep doing the same thing you do over and over again and it just add shame upon shame, guilt upon guilt. And Jesus came for freedom to set us free from those things through his cross and his resurrection. The light of God's grace chases away shame. The light of God's grace gets to the root of Sin gets to the root of sin. Uh, It wasn't enough, in other words, for these disciples, these believers in Ephesus to simply stop using the books, but keep them on the shelf. For them, this was their particular situation. That wasn't enough. They needed to kind of get to the root of it. And for them, that meant a good old fashioned book burning, gather them all together and just set it on fire. Uh, And that was their way of kind of digging up the root of sin right you know if you cut a tree down and you don't kill it all the way down to the roots what's going to happen starts putting off branches again you got to dig deep to get rid of that and it's the same with sin that that we have to kind of often keep confessing keep repenting keep digging a little bit deeper to see what's going on on the heart in the heart behind the behavior and this helped them as they brought their sin brought these bad these evil practices into the light it helped them get to the root of sin and make this decisive break with it no longer just dealing with the surface kind of we often skim the surface of our problems and we don't take the extra time to kind of dig a little deeper to see what's going on in our hearts to bring it into the light of God's grace and yet that's how God changes us uh, to not just focus on what's outside actions behaviors but to see what what's my heart doing in relation to God and finally the light of God's grace brings us further into new life. The light of God's grace brings us further into new life. This is the pattern that Jesus has set for his people, dying and rising again and again and again. Uh, we don't just celebrate the resurrection at Easter. We live the resurrection every day as we follow Christ, because every day as a Christian is meant to be dying to our sin and living in the power of Christ's resurrection. His victory over our sin, the announcement of forgiveness for our sins, of being freed from the shame and shackles of our sin and being freed to walk in the light of His glorious grace and promises. And as we bring our sin into the light of God's grace, uh, it helps us to develop that pattern, that habit of dying to ourselves, dying to sin, and living unto new life again and again. What would your life be like? How different would your life be if you really believed that God's grace covers over all of your sin? What would your life be like if you really believed that you can stand in the presence of a holy God who despises sin, but you can stand in his presence without shame, without fear, because the love of God in Christ has cast out all fear because his love, is perfect love. Well, what difference would that make if you knew that because of Jesus, you could pour out the things that you struggle with, you know, put them on whatever scale you want to, how bad they are, doesn't matter, but that you could speak honestly and openly to God and to other trusted believers about the things that plague you, the things that you struggle with, And that you would find real grace. Wouldn't that change you? Wouldn't that give you joy? Wouldn't that cast out shame? And wouldn't that help you love what is good more than we love what is evil as we bring it into the light of God's grace? What a difference that would make. And isn't it good news that when Jesus sets his table and bids us to come, that the people that he's welcoming to his table are sinners who have acknowledged their need for God's grace and who are in this process where the light of his grace is shining more and more and more, exposing our sin and healing our sin, bringing us out of, out of shame, bringing us out of the weight of guilt because Jesus has taken our shame. He's taken our guilt upon himself at the cross. And he bore it into the tomb, and it was buried, and he rose again from the dead, conquering it and putting it away from us. Jesus welcomes us to himself in the gospel, promising forgiveness and cleansing. And and he welcomes all those who have put their faith in him to come to his table and to find renewal, to find strength, to find the assurance, the reminder, Christ died for you. And Christ lives for you and in Christ all sin and all shame is put away. We need not fear the light, but can bring it all into the light and the confidence of his grace. May we do that, And, and as we do, may he make us a people confident in his promises, gracious and loving towards one another as we walk together in this life. Would you pray?